0: Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultrim, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask.
1: Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to, with new episodes dropping every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too.
0: In today's episode of What About Death? I speak with Dr. Tess Moyake-Maxwell, a research fellow at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and a founding member of the Te Arai Palliative Care and End-of-Life Research Group. Tess tells us about the view of dying and death from her perspective as a proud Maori woman and from her extensive experience, both personally and professionally, researching palliative and end-of-life care within the Indigenous community of New Zealand. So in today's episode of What About Death?, I have the great pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Tess Moieki-Maxwell, and I'd like to welcome you very much to the What About Death podcast.
1: Kia it's a pleasure to be here. I would like to just uh, formally introduce myself. Ko ngaitaiki tamaki te iwi, ko ngātipurau te iwi. Kei wayuku taku kainga nai uh, e kui maia, e koroma e rangatira maa, tēnā koutou katoa, Kia koe Thank you very much for this invitation to join you today. I hail from the tribes of Ngaitai in South Auckland and also Ngati Piro down the East Coast, and I'm fifth generation Irish extraction, Pākehā. Kia ora. Thank you, and lovely to be here and joining you today.
0: Thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> so, Doctor, my first question to all of my guests is, what is your first recollection, memory or experience of death?
1: There was never a time that I did not know death. I was born into a family with a Maori mother, Indigenous New Zealand mother, and my mother had lost a baby, one previous to me, uh, and the baby had lived for two months and then died, and she was quite a sickly baby, but my mother never realised that she was unwell. The story that my mother tells is that she was patient and loving to her baby who grizzled and cried a lot and then was very surprised when the baby was hospitalised and died shortly afterwards from a cardiac condition. So growing up, I heard about my sister. I heard about the beautiful baby, the great care my mother gave uh, to, of her, the, the mourning, the, the, the grieving that never actually stopped so I was very fortunate to see there would be, you know, periods of time when my mother wouldn't talk about my sister, and then there would be a significant birthday or something like that, and my mother would remind us all, and there were many of us children, she would say, Jeanette would have been sixteen today. I've had a cry today, or Jeanette would have been twenty-one today, and so the cycle of life and. From the youngest to the to the oldest member of a, of a farno, we would say uh, a farno or a family, is something I'm just familiar with, and it was just part of my culture. The spiritual connections, as well, to that deceased person, uh, were very common. So my older sister. Often, talk about the dreams she had of this baby that had passed into spirit, and messages would come from this sister of mine in spirit. And so, in this way, it was just very normal and natural. The next uh, significant death of mine was a very, very close family member who was also the father of one of my siblings, and I loved him very much. I felt that very deeply as a loss when I was about eight. But then, perhaps even more significantly, Two weeks before my 16th birthday, my boyfriend Mark was killed by, unfortunately, a a driver that was over the limit, intoxicated. My boyfriend was on a motorbike, on the back of a motorbike, and he got struck, and he lived for a week in hospital on a ventilator, and he was taken off that and died. And so that was a huge impact when I was nearly 16, and uh, I walked alongside his mother's intense grief. And she uh, has passed now; she died only a year or two ago in her nineties but she did say to me that her intense grief lasted for ten years and with my mother, I know that when there was an article in the New Zealand Herald about a baby who'd had this life changing heart surgery on the front page of our national uh, newspaper, my mother rang we were having a, a Dinner at my mother's farm that night, and I saw the front of the newspaper, and it said this baby uh, had this groundbreaking um, surgery, and it was a testimony to the parents back in the late fifties and early sixties who donated their baby's hearts to science to try and scientifically find a way to. Operate on these little babies with holes in the hearts or whatever issue they had so that these babies could uh, survive. And my mother rang me very excitedly and she said, When you're all here at dinner tonight, I have some news for you. And I said, Does it have anything to do with the story on the front page of the Herald? And she said, Yes, it does. And my mother then told me, Now you've got to remember, I was about 40 then. My mother told me, She said, You know, I've never told any of you children, but your father and I donated Jeanette's heart to science. The doctors asked them and my parents donated her heart. Now, for an Indigenous woman to do that, and my mother was born under a plum tree. She was born in a tent under a plum tree. So I'm first born generation, you know, Maori, uh, born in the urban sector. My mother was of the different generation, uh, born in the early 30s. So for my mother to give up my sister's heart to science was a huge thing. And I always wondered why she never herself and my father never put a gravestone on my sister's grave. So I felt as though it was because her body was incomplete. There was an incomplete story there. And so now my mother said to me, the circle has closed, she said. The the baby cycle of life made sense to my mother. She said, now I know why we had our baby and why she died, because her body it, it was able to help the scientists and the doctors, and now the, the babies with this problem can live. So that's kind of my introduction to death and, and and the way that perhaps, you know, we as Indigenous people might think about the cycle of life and that circle of life. It's hmm. a beautiful story.
0: So you mentioned before the word spirit. So I'm interested in how the notion of spirit or how you you know, define spirit in, in the Maori culture and then the idea of connection. You know, How does that fit with the death process?
1: My understanding and what I've been told is specific to my own understanding within my own whānau, my own family and i just want to acknowledge that other maori families other tribes iwi they may have their own ways of thinking about this but so i'm going to share my own perspective i need to contextualize that first i'm not a voice piece for all maori if you understand so in this context these are my personal views that i've been taught so i've been taught that the uh, supreme creator or life force io matua kore petitioned the modi or the energetic life force to seek out wairua, the spirit, to seek out the body, the physical form, and the body seeks out the heningaro or the mind. Sorry, I'll go back a step. The modi seeks out the wairua, the spirit. The spirit seeks out the heningaro or the mind. The mind seeks out the body. And so in this way, When we near death, my understanding is the Mori or the energetic life force withdraws from the body. And at the time of death, the spirit leaves. That's my understanding of that process.
0: In the West, we seem to have, you know, a culture of death denial, culture of fear around death. Because you've got this story behind. A dying and death. Do you find that there is that same sense of death denial or fear
1: that the anxiety that comes with death in my own culture and in my own Fano? Look honestly, I think everyone to some degree has some anxiety about the thought that their spirit is going to leave their body, and also with um, you know hospice nurses and and people that I've. Uh, been working with for quite a long time, my partner's also a former palliative care nurse, what they tell me also is that we die how we live. And, and I, I do believe that. And so if you're someone that has an anxiety in life and then someone in your family is dying or perhaps you're facing your own imminent death, there's bound to be some anxiety that crops up. But I think because we have our Indigenous belief system I think what it does give us is a core belief system that we can fall back on and know that the waiter or the spirit will transition the arai or the veil, it will transition and it will travel homewards wherever that home may be. And we like to think that home is with our ancestors and for those of us that have Christian backgrounds, we like to think those ancestors are waiting for us in heaven. But there is still that concept within our Māori philosophical understandings that there are many realms within the spiritual realms. So, and I'm I'm not an expert on that, so I wouldn't comment on that, but I do think from what I've seen with, within my own personal and Fano context and within the work that I do with, with and for Māori who are at end of life, having this belief system, this idea that we will one day die, our spirit will leave, it will transcend and move on. It's actually part of a natural process, and I think it helps tremendously.
0: Are there cultural, spiritual rituals that are expressed in the main across the the Maori culture, or is that also quite a family tradition or process?
1: I think there are some basic things we could talk about, and so if we talk about the caregiving that happens, uh, and we know that fa- families provide the bulk of care. So if we talk about that for a moment, you know, the physical care, the medical side of it is important, but I would argue what is equally important or even more important is the spiritual care, the cultural and spiritual care that has to be attended to. We've become skew with, I think we've become out of balance. This, the, the dominance of the medical model and the medicalization of dying has I think in some ways, stolen away from us, our sense of independence, confidence, autonomy around caring for our own people and looking after them throughout that death process. You know, nowadays we're so reliant on the medical model, we're so reliant on those doctors. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that good symptom management, pain control isn't important. It really, really is. But I want to hold that and respect that in alignment with really good cultural and spiritual care. And within the Māori context, we know, we have this word called rongoa, R-O-N-G-O-A, and rongoa means natural healing. And it encompasses anything that can bring a sense of equilibrium, a sense of balance and harmony, a sense of well-being or oranga. One of the things that we found out in the Paiheringa study, a study I've led, and and we're still writing up findings and whatnot, you know, one of the things that that we talk about is that the family themselves are the rongoa. So the families provide the healing. And of course, I'm talking about well enough families, families that are healthy enough uh, holistically in themselves to provide that support to that person that's ill and dying and those whānau members that are suffering from bereavement. So that's really important, I think, to remember that families are aromua, they are the healing self, and we need to bring everything back into balance. And I might have just forgotten that question. Do you Uh, want um,
0: to remind me? No, 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 not at all. Um, I'm interested in the you know, whether
1: there's specific rituals. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And I was talking about the end-of-life care. So mm-hmm. I was talking, first of all, about families being the healing modality. Now, families carry out karakia. And what the participants in the Paiheringa study, and it was a study of traditional Maori end-of-life care customs, what those participants showed us is that the number one rongoa or natural healing is karakia. And karakia are prayers, prayers, incantations, and chants. Another thing that sits alongside that are waiata. Waiata is singing. Well, singing is so important or music is so important because of the vibrational frequency it carries. And we know that there is music that we can listen to that really uplifts us, and there is music that really brings us down. And so it's about bringing in those hymns, those uh, traditional songs that we may have to really uplift the spirit of the person that's passing over and also those that are are kind of walking alongside them that are grappling with uh, very strong emotions and reactions to what's happening. So that's kind of the, I guess, um, before death. Also, the rōngua extends to our natural healing medicines. And so we believe in the synergy of the beautiful energy from our, from our natural plants. We have things like kawakawa, uh, kōwhai, Kumaraho. There are lots of natural plants that we would use. We can use those as uh, like a, a cup of tea. We can drink them as a cup of tea. We can bathe in those. We can take them as an essence or we can use them as an anointing oil. Those things are also very important to us. Look, there are all manner of things that encompass Rongua, even humour, we love to use humour in our Indigenous culture. So often you'll see at a funeral, for example, when there are speeches being made, there are lots of tears, references to the deceased, beautiful words spoken for the family that's grieving. But then all of a sudden the speaker, the orator, may take a bit of a, a poke at themselves, if you like, and have a joke on their at their own expense or perhaps, perhaps somebody else. And everyone laughs. And so it's this natural flow, like the waves coming in and out. There's this natural sort of shifting of emotions from feeling the pain and honouring that and to now we're back into laughter and it raises up that frequency again. So there are very subtle ways that we can be um, held and helped during that uh, period of time. At the time of death, one of the main things that's going to happen will be the prayers The soul is released or the spirit is released from the body. And there are certain uh, rituals around prayer that are conducted usually by one of our ministers um, or a kaumatua, which is an elder, could be male or female, or perhaps a family member that has knowledge and confidence in that area, songs, that sort of thing. Uh, also take place. And then when the body is moved from a room, let's say a room at home or a room from a hospice or a hospital, that room is blessed, it is cleansed. And that process is called whakawātia. Whakawātia is to to, uh, return to an ordinary state. And once again, we're clearing the energies uh, that uh, those frequencies that might take place and also ensuring that that spirit has actually transitioned on. Because sometimes spirits want to stay, there might be an issue, something's happened, they get disrupted, and they kind of get stuck. So we're trying to help them shift on to where they should be going. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it sounds
0: like family is an integral part of this process.
1: Look, I have to just say, you're absolutely right. For so long, the biomedical model has placed the the specialists and the surgeons and the gps and you know this and, and even now the specialist palliative care services they're they're all at the forefront but in actual fact, if we're truly honest who who is there twenty four seven hours a day generally speaking and I'm not talking about the residential care homes here the aged homes I'm not talking about them at the moment but generally it is the family that is walking alongside, caring for that person that's ill and imminently dying. And the health services are providing that physical, perhaps sometimes psychosocial support. But I think we need to flip it around and have Farno or families driving this whole end-of-life process and requesting or, or getting the support from health professionals and really the family's feeling as though they've got this, they're in control of it, instead of quite often feeling powerless and not knowing what's happening, not not knowing what uh, what's going to happen when this person dies. What does death actually look like when someone's dying? What will that look like? And no death is the same, just like no birth is the same. So how does that look? When the medical model
0: becomes the priority, it's often very difficult to fit in the, the cultural and spiritual aspects. So how have you found in your research a way to try and influence that process, to try and influence the, the clinical medical model to incorporate both cultural and spiritual practices, whether at whether at home or or in the hospital?
1: That's a very good question. Now, we are very fortunate in New Zealand. Uh, she has passed over now, but Dr. Harperty Ramston coined this expression cultural safety within nursing. So to me, Dr. Ramsden set a precedent for quality, cultural and spiritual care within the healthcare system. Now, I know she was talking primarily about nursing care, but actually I think it's just a great standard of care across the uh, different healthcare settings that we really need to adopt a cultural safety approach. Now, in New Zealand, we do have something called tikanga policy, which is the cultural customs policy that each DHB, District Health Board, each hospital, every health provider should be adhering to our cultural safety policies or these tikanga best practice policies. But I can tell you now it's variable how that gets enacted some health professionals are very good at it and some wouldn't know what you were talking about. And so I think we need to really enhance that, get more education, more training on board. At the moment, we have to ask ourselves, how many palliative care hours of training in terms of working with Fano on that cultural, spiritual level, how many hours of training do doctors get? in our country, or even your country. Sure. How many how many hours of training do nurses get that are specific to this level of care? And I would say not very much. In fact, I know it's only a few hours. And so if we truly want to develop services that can wrap around and support, but whānau or families driving it, then we need to actually increase that level of education and training so that we're all on board with it. otherwise, I call this the empress clothes. We're going to make some changes, but really it's the same old thing tarted up. I would really like to see and encourage more individual health professionals taking responsibility for, in their own areas where they live, finding out what cultural groups live here and what are their needs at end of life in terms of cultural and spiritual needs. How do the families do end-of-life care, dying and death care? How do they do that? And then how can we support them? What do they need from us? Instead of us dictating to them all the time what they need to be receiving. (laughs) So, yeah. I'm
0: interested in New Zealand, how accessible is community and in-home palliative care? And then is it utilised well by the Indigenous population in New Zealand?
1: Uh, Look, I just... I haven't met a Maori family that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed hundreds, that have used the hospice services and haven't found them to be supportive. That's marvellous. And really what they're responding to is that one-on-one whānau-centric care, that family-centric care. So I think we probably have in the mid-30s, late-30s number of hospices in New Zealand Some of them have inpatient units, some don't, some are educationally-based services and some are community-based services. My understanding is is that a lot of hospices are actually uh, reaching out to their communities and more Maori are using them. But in New Zealand, we still have something that prevails within our Maori culture. Uh, We have a saying called... uh, Karanga aitua, and it's the fear of calling death down. And so, if we talk about death, if we visit places we think are associated with death, and don't forget, there's still a lot of ignorance around what a hospice is. And so, a lot of people will do that shorthand thing: oh, hospice, oh, that's the place to go and die. So we still have that ideology here, if you like, about hospice. And so, we're trying hard to change that because hospice provides a great service. I still think in many ways that the cultural safety model needs to be really amped up, more Māori staff, uh, the services more aligned with Māori cultural needs, particularly of those communities it serves. Um, and we need more education of our Māori whānau in New Zealand to let them know that actually hospice isn't a place to die. You actually can die at home. That's That's the preference. And what we can do is we can come alongside you at home and provide some really wonderful care for your for your family member and for yourselves. Um, and we're here 24-7 generally, not always, but generally. But if we can get that message out to whāna, we could help to dispel some of the myth and reduce some of the fear or that anxiety around, gee, if I go to that place or invite those people in, it means I'm going to die. You know, whereas really hospice is about hey, you can live as well as you can for as long as you can because we're here to support you. Yes, I mean, I
0: think it's the thing that we found at Karuna because we work with people who are uh, reaching their end of life at home. For those who can, not everybody is able to do that, of course, but um, it's such a, you know, in the main, such a wonderful experience for people. It's very hard work, of course, to be caring for somebody in the home as they get closer to their end of life. But uh, in terms of the, the person dying to be in a familiar place that with familiar surroundings and the smells and the noises that they're familiar with can bring a lot of comfort and care and reduce that anxiety and fear, I think.
1: Yes, I think that's true too. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, in our own culture, and I'm sure it's true for all cultures, is that there are, particularly with our older people, who have memory of growing on, growing up on the land, being within community, uh, many who would have spoken uh, Maori as a first language, and who had more that communal or collective kind of lifestyle, particularly on the ancestral lands and the ancestral homes. So, one of the things that's very important at end of life is having access to kai or we would say the food of the esteemed people. And of course, when you're dying, you're an esteemed person, and those food products sometimes as you know it's only a taste on the tongue but it's the smell and these things evoke these beautiful memories of things past people people that have gone on uh parents you know siblings youth they bring back these wonderful nurturing memories that help to embrace and carry that person's wairera from the body through the arai and uh they're important Also water from a particular stream, Uh, we're very connected to our landscapes um, as Maori and so there might be particular streams which we believe have healing properties to us so we want to drink the water from that stream or we want to eat the puha, the, um, the green vegetation from a particular river or something like that. So often seafood is, is a big one too for our people.
0: And so um, let's touch on the grief process. So how does culture and spirit support those who are left behind?
1: I think, well, let's go back to the, the first thing I spoke about, and that was whānau themselves are healing. When we were shifting into more a, a kind of an urban society, and we go back to even up to the 1950s, I think, we would have people ill and dying perhaps in an urban sector. The nannies or the, the grandmothers or the old old ladies from the community, the rural communities, they would often come in with their bags packed, prepared to stay to care for that person and the family during that time of um, end-of-life caring and then dying process and afterwards. And sometimes family members would stay on after the tangihana. So our funerals can last from three days to five days. I'll talk about that in a minute. But those people would often stay and walk alongside the family and be there to help. Now it might be to cook a meal, help to look after the children, be be a shoulder for people to cry on. That support was exceptional. Now in a lot of families Uh, and it's through, I guess, colonialism, uh, assimilation, urbanisation, some of those beautiful cultural aspects that we had are no longer. I'm really hoping that we can resurrect and reclaim some of those practices to help us because pretty much there are many Māori now that are living westernised lifestyles. You know, the nuclear model kind of prevails. So I think there are families that are still very traditional and one of the things that I try and do in the work that I'm doing is to take those stories, and I shouldn't say me, I have a team. So there's <laughs> 30 of us and I work with an elders group, the TRI Kahui Ka And what we try and do is we try and borrow those examples and stories of good practice at end of life for caring for the person who's ill and dying and the family And we we try and share those with families who have become culturally disenfranchised so they have other ways of knowing and being because so many of our Maori families have have forgotten, have lost that knowledge. So that's one of the ways um, I think that we help families is by providing that additional support from somebody who's a family member who lives outside the family, who come into the home and who help in very practical ways. But they also have a lot of cultural knowledge. So that's knowledge of prayers, karanga, that's our traditional calling, um, waiata, singing and that sort of thing. It's all helpful. The other thing is we do have rongoa. So as I talked about, there are our natural plant medicines they can help people by soothing emotions, um, helping to release fear and anxiety and things like that. We use massage as well. So, all these kinds of, I guess, holistic methods, we, we can draw upon those to help. But when you talk to families, they often just talk about being together as family as healing. They talk about the love of their children and grandchildren because I think it's the love that softens. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely.
0: And again, it's reinforcing the the importance of family leading up to the death process and after.
1: The other thing to add is that many of us, myself included, we still consult tohunga. So these are people that a tohunga means somebody that has expertise in a certain area, uh, and there are spiritual tohunga, and many of us consult tohunga or rongoa practitioners. And these practitioners often have the spiritual side as well. So I, I will just tell you one story here from the Paiheringa study, which was beautiful. One of my participants who is a rongoa healer, so she's a natural healer. Uh, she does massage, she knows how to do all of that, but she also can see into the other realm. And she uses that uh, gift to help people. So she told me an example. She was called by somebody who was very concerned that a woman who had lost her mother, her mother had died, was not coping. And now it was turning into something that was resembling a mental health issue. And so the participant was asked to go and help this bereaved woman. When she was with her, she was able to talk to her and tell her your mother is here uh, i can smell this this perfume this is what your mother is saying and she could walk this woman through some of the questions unanswered questions she might have had or there was sort of an unfinished conversation that probably needed to happen and so my participant was able to facilitate a dialogue and then there was a healing and this woman no longer had the suffering that she was having. So that is one of the ways that we use. It's a very, very important natural healing for us to be able to communicate with those that have passed on, um, depending on what spiritual or religious discourse that you affiliate to. Uh, and that that's, that's so fundamental uh, for us when we have someone die that we need to know they have arrived safely. We need to know if there's something unfinished something's cleared. If there's some anxiety, that's put to rest. And so that is something that, that we, can, we can use and we do use.
0: So you've spent many years researching. You've had a lot of life experience of death and dying yourself. So as a result of all of that, has your own view of death changed over time? And what have you learned about death? Oh, thank you for
1: that um, question. Uh, I've learned that death is part of life. I think that's the big thing, and that's the message I was given right from a tot, uh, is that you can't have life without death. Everything is in balance. You can't have dry without wet. You can't have sun without moon. You can't have the lush forest without the desert. Every, everything is in balance, and we need to come to that place where we accept that within ourselves and I think when we can accept it in ourselves, we we can accept our own the timing of our own death as well. Um, and and it's an an inevitable thing, but it's how we arrive at it, and it's how we treat it. Uh, and if we treat it as a friend, I think we'll do a lot better than if we we fight it to the moment we take our last breath. That that's kind of what I've learned. It's what's been reinforced. The the thing that I would like to see in our country is that we start to think about this prospect of our own death early, and I know the Buddhists do this very well, but a, but a lot of us don't do it well. And I think we, as well people, as young people, we need to start thinking about the cycle of life and how we are going to walk lightly through life and do this with dignity and grace so that we don't end up at the end of our life in a screaming heap and thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't plan for this. I've got three boats in the garage. I've got two houses that I live in. I've got three rental houses. I've got three degrees, but I am not prepared for my own passing. So I think, you know, if we look at who we are, what our purpose is, and what what we've come here to do, what what are we here for? Uh, we need to sort all that stuff out, I believe, because when we do that, we can leave this place unencumbered. And that's another role of families, to ensure that that person, the Moi, the energetic life force of them, the wairua, the spirit of them, the henengaro, the mind of them, and the body is settled so that that person is in the most optimal position to transition from the physical form back into that energetic, non-physical form.
0: Beautiful. I think that's a perfect way to end our chat today. So thank you so much for your time and your insights and your expertise. I really do appreciate it because I think, as you say, you know, the more comfortable we can be with this very natural, inevitable part of life, the easier it will be when it approaches. So thank Thank you so much. Uh, I really wish you all the very best. Um, Maybe just before we go, yes, please talk for a moment about your website because it's quite beautiful.
1: Thank you. So the website is called www and it's teipuaronui.co.nz and I'll spell that, www.teipuaronui.co.nz. The Paiheringa study, as I said, was a study of traditional Māori end-of-life care customs. And last year, our team wrote this website, which really meant we wanted to present the participants' findings. We conducted, uh, through the pilot and the main part of the study, 22 short digital stories about families' experiences and perspectives of providing care at end-of-life. So there's several stories there about caring for someone with dementia, for, you know. There's, there's a story there about uh, somebody who was a very contemporary person but also was able, he was designing his own funeral but he did it uh, drawing upon his traditions and he also did it with his own contemporary aspect added to it. So there's lots of interesting videos to look at but importantly there are lots of, Extracts from the family interviews, the Rongwa uh, practitioner interviews, so the natural healer interviews, and also Maori and some non-Maori health professional interviews are there too. So people that are leaders or esteemed within their communities, we've interviewed. There, all those extracts and information are sitting there for families to go and look at, and anyone's welcome to look at the site. We also have a section for health professionals. So this idea of cultural safety, what does that look like? Well, if health professionals go on there and have a look about, you know, different sections, like what does it mean to care for a kaumatua, an elder? You know, what does it mean to care for somebody with mana? And mana is about status and prestige. So we can start to learn a little bit about Maori culture and caring for older Maori if we go and have a look at that site I just want to mention Sophia Minson, a very beautiful artist who also whakapapas to Ngāti Perot. and uh, Sophia Minson and her husband and their business uh, donated to us images that she has done. She's a, a painter, and we have been able to use some of the images she's done around death figures, if you like, in Maori in Maori culture, and we've we've utilized them on our website. So. Yeah, I just encourage people to go along and have a look. And i just add that next year, we've got something very exciting happening. We will have some information about another study uh, called Rāpua Tamarama. So look for it next year, about mid-next year, uh, because currently interviewing people, I've just finished the interviews for a COVID-19 study. So we've interviewed 61 families, rongoa people, funeral directors and healthcare professionals, people that have had experience of losing someone during a lockdown situation during COVID, the COVID period. We have used professional photographers to photograph the storytellers, the families, and we've got a statement from each family which we're crafting from interview material. So we're going to have a photographic exhibition and we think we're going to bring that online So if people come back next year, they'll get a lovely surprise. It's going to be very beautiful, but very sad, but also very empowering because all of these families, including my own, my granddaughter died during level four lockdown, which is why I'm leading the study, because I believe we need help. We need to share what we know with other families to help them. So it's all about how did we survive? How did we adapt our customs? Uh, And all those stories will be on our website next year, including the photographs. Wonderful. Right, well, thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and uh, I wish you all the very best with your ongoing work. You are really doing uh, remarkable work in supporting the Māori culture in end-of-life care and so forth. So I really do thank you very much for your insights and your expertise today.
1: Would it be all right if I just closed with a waiata, a song? Yes, please. Thank you. Ko te aroha, ko te rawa, no ki waenga e. Kia
0: thank you. In our next episode of What About Death, I speak with Bindi Irwin, world-renowned conservationist, television personality, wildlife warrior, and the daughter of Steve and Terry Irwin of the world-famous Australia Zoo here in Queensland. Bindi shares her experience following the death of her father Steve when she was just eight years old, and she tells us how her understanding of the cycle of life, death and grief gives her purpose, hope and a joy for life and how the events of her past and her present are shaping how she moves into the future with her own family. I look forward to your company then.
1: Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.